Matthew 16 and beginning at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, as we head into these verses, we're thinking about what it will look like as Jesus gathers his church. Last week, we were thinking about what the prospects for Jesus' church are, the prospects in 2023. This week, if you like, we're considering the expectations for his disciples as he gathers. What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus in 2023? And particularly, has anything gone wrong if it feels hard or costly or we experience persecution? Last week, we saw the prospects of Jesus' church are rock solid. Remember, we heard two definitive declarations We call them the you tell me and the I tell you moments. And let's just remind ourselves of them. Verse 15, just before our passage um, this morning, Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus replied, the I tell you moment, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus has given us rock-solid confidence that he will build his church, and even death cannot stop it. He is the Christ. The apostolic word is established. And he's given us the stone-clad conviction that it's on this word alone and nothing else that he will build his church. And so in verse 19, we get these amazing, remarkable words Jesus says, I will give you, to his disciples, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And as his disciples go out and we hold out the apostolic word, well, we're holding out the keys of the kingdom. And so we might expect the next scene here, well, to be Jesus sending his disciples out to tell the world, to tell them that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. But instead we get verse 20. Jesus says, verse 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So we've had you tell me. We've had I'll tell you. And now we have tell no one. 
So what's going on? Well, Jesus wants us to understand something vital about the rock on which the church is built. He wants us to understand what kind of Christ he is. And then when we understand that, we'll understand what it will look like to follow him. And so two points this morning. Jesus is the Christ who must suffer and die. And Jesus' disciples must follow their suffering king. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Before Peter and his disciples hold out the keys of the kingdom, they need to understand what kind of Christ Jesus is. And through the coming chapters, Jesus will be showing us that his death is both what establishes his church and what shapes it. And the, verse, the word that's key in verse 21 is that word must. Jesus must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. He must. Jesus' death is not optional. It's, not, it's a non-negotiable. Jesus must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer and die on the cross. He doesn't mention the cross explicitly there in verse 21, but by verse 24, we know that's what he's talking about when he says, take up your cross. And through the previous chapters, chapters 14 and 15, we've been seeing Jesus demonstrate that he is the rescuing Lord. He's come to deliver a rescue like the Exodus, all that God's rescue pointed to. We've seen him holding out salvation to the nations, confirming that he will gather a people from every tribe and tongue and language and race to enjoy life in his abundant kingdom. And whilst we've been gazing at the wonder of Jesus, well, we've also come face to face with the desperate need we have for salvation. Remember the portraits of the ugliness of unbelief we had with Herod, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, murderous hostility to the truth about Jesus, accusations, opposition against those who follow him, refusal to acknowledge him as the Christ. Those show us the attitude that's at the heart of sin, the attitude that says, I will not surrender to Jesus. And in chapter 15, Jesus has shown us, well, the depths of the heart of sin as he exposed what flows from the human heart. We can just see it across the page there, at top of page 990, chapter 15, verse 18. Jesus says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. It's a list that describes, well, people. It's not exhaustive, but it is extensive, and it encompasses us all. And when we read a list like that, we really have to engage in a a game of self-delusion if we're going to deny the evidence that we too are sinners in need of a saviour. But Matthew has been showing us Jesus. And here he wants us to understand that he can save because he's the Christ who suffers and dies for sinners. Verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed 
and on the third day be raised. At the, Jesus, at the cross, Jesus willingly bore the punishment for sin so that sinners might be forgiven. At the cross, sin and death are disarmed because all who depend on Jesus' forgiveness are washed clean of sin. Because of his death on the cross, Jesus can extend mercy to all who come. And through his death on the cross, Jesus looses sinners from the gates of hell. And in dependence on his death on on the cross, Jesus' church can gather to him. And so what kind of Christ is Jesus? Well, he is the son of the living God, and he is the eternal king. He rules over the nations, but he's the Christ who must suffer and die and be raised on the third day. And Peter hears this, and this talk of suffering and death is just too much to take. It doesn't make sense at all. Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And those really are pretty bold words, if you think about it. Peter is talking to one who he has just confessed is God's anointed king established to rule over all the world. And he says, you've got it all wrong. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Literally, he says, mercy on you, Lord. It's as if Peter is actually appealing for a pardon for Jesus for saying such an outrageous thing. Peter has no place for a Christ who will die. He wants to follow a glorious king, go to Jerusalem, yes, and win a big battle and reign forever, yes, but suffer at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed? But it's not Peter, but it's Peter, not Jesus, who has got things wrong. Verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And that would have been, well, what would that moment have been like? How would those words have landed? Peter's reaction, the other disciples, shock, a stunned silence. What Jesus says to Peter is so strong. As readers, we have to listen up. Get behind me, Satan. Well, Jesus is not saying Peter is possessed by Satan. But he is saying Peter's opposition to his death on the cross is satanic. As long as Peter opposes the cross, he is a hindrance, opposing the plan of God. And that word for hindrance literally means stumbling block. Because Peter doesn't want to crucify Christ, he's gone from rock to stumbling block. Often we have visitors here on a Sunday morning looking around the church before our meetings begin. It's a great time to come and grab a coffee and chat to them. One Sunday morning I was chatting to a gentleman who had told me he'd recently converted to Islam. We talked about the cross. And he said he liked the idea of forgiveness, but not the idea of a sacrifice for sin. I noticed on a neighbor's bookshelf recently, they had a lot of books about all kinds of spirituality. And I guess inside you'd find promises of a path to life. But there was no mention of the cross. Because the cross is offensive. But to oppose it, well, that's to be on the side of Satan. A message about the Christ without the cross is man's delusion, not God's design. In our first reading this morning, we read Isaiah's prophecy of the one who would be eternal king and also suffering 
servant. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Jesus had to die to establish his kingdom. Jesus had to die to gather his church. And so the rock on which Jesus will build his church, well, it is the word, the testimony about the Christ, the son of the living God, who suffered and died on a cross for sinners. And Jesus' church will not be built on anything else. A while back, I read a review about a book, um, interesting title, called The Benedict Option. And the book was arguing that the way to build the church in 21st century is to rediscover Benedictine monasticism. Now, there really are all kinds of ideas out there. Silver bullets that say, do this, and the church will grow. But it could be tempting, couldn't it, just to begin to sideline the cross. Or if, even if you like, try and graduate from the cross, as if the cross was GCSE, but if we want to get to A-levels or higher education, well, we need to find something more refined. In one sermon, the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon described Church leaders who said they believed the doctrine of the cross but were reluctant to teach it as men who hide the truth and prove that they're as much offended with the cross as if they openly tried to refute its doctrines. See, we don't want to move on from the cross. Jesus is clear. He will build his church on the rock of the word about the Christ, the son of the living God, crucified. And he'll build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it And if we depart from that testimony, well, he'll still build it, but it just won't be with us. And so these verses raise the question, well, do we believe that Jesus had to suffer and he had to die? I was chatting to someone in in the week about this, and they suggested perhaps the question is not so much, do we simply believe this is right, but do we personally, as a church family, believe that Jesus had to die for me, for us, for his church. And so then the question that follows is, well, what would it look like to believe this? And that's what Jesus goes on to explain to us. And our second point, Jesus' disciples must follow their suffering king. Verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In these verses that, that follow, Jesus will show us that to take up our cross and to follow him is not only the right thing to do because of who he is, but it's the best thing we can possibly do because of what he's done. Verse 24 is the call, and verses 25, 3 to 28 give three developing reasons, and we'll work through them shortly. But verse 24 again, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here Jesus explains that his church will be a gathering of disciples who have surrendered their lives fully to him, the Christ who suffered and died. When he says deny himself, well, that is not talking about giving up chocolate for Lent or having a dry January. And it's not talking about asceticism, you know, people in the desert fathers who would go and hide in caves or sit on top of poles and deny themselves food. Jesus is not telling us to harm ourselves. To deny ourselves is to hand over control of our lives to him 
If you were to go and chat to a neighbor or a school friend or a colleague and just ask them, what's your ambition for life? Well, with all the individuality of different people, what we'd hear is just such a normal answer. They would tell us something about their ambition to essentially make the best of life for themselves. One writer describes it as a way of life that presumes self-interest to be fundamental. Me in the driving seat, the crown on my head. And Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you need to hand over control of your life and follow me. Jesus' interest is fundamental. Jesus in the driving seat. This is what Jesus describes as repentance. And it looks like full surrender to him. And he gives us a key image to help us understand this. He says, take up, he says, um, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now, perhaps we might sometimes hear people use that phrase when there's a, a minor struggle in life. That cliche phrase, oh, well, we've all got our cross to bear. Well, that is not what Jesus is talking about here. The cross was a means of brutal execution. Cicero wrote, there is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. To Peter and the disciples, the image of taking up your cross was stark. It was a picture of a dead man walking. And if we were to imagine someone walking through the streets, carrying that beam across their shoulders, well, one thing we'd never expect to hear is them talking about what their future career ambitions were and the next things on their bucket list. It just wouldn't make sense, would it? because their life is over. To take up the cross is to die to our own self-serving ambitions and surrender to Jesus. It's to choose to follow Jesus as Lord with eyes open to the cost, knowing that he suffered at the hands of sinful men and women and that he's the king who chose hardship for the sake of service and that that will be the pattern for his disciples. Jesus says, take up his cross and follow me. And that word, me, really matters, because Jesus is not just an ordinary leader. He's the Christ who suffered and died for sinners. He's the Savior who gave his life so that he might extend mercy to all who come to him. He's the compassionate king who cares for his kingdom. When Jesus says, surrender it to me, well, this is to choose to lose life now, but it is the best thing we can possibly do. That's where he goes in verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The question here is, will we lose or will we find? And the issue can't be more important. It's our life, our soul. And Jesus wants us to view our lives with an eternal perspective. Seek to save life now and ultimately we will lose it. Choose to lose our life for his sake and we will find it. And he says it's, well, it says it's for everyone. Whoever, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It applies to every single person in the world. Now to save life in this world is to resist the call of Christ, to surrender and follow him. And I guess the thought of living for me, well, as we think about it, making the best of things for myself, but it has a very strong appeal. But Jesus says, keep the future in mind. Whoever would save his life now will lose it. Self-satisfaction now, yes, but salvation from sin spurned. A life truly lost. And as I've been thinking about this, I'm just thinking, well, actually, if we stand back and look at a world that seeks to save its life now, 
We might question how well it really works at any time. Just think this week of Boris and Donald. And so Jesus says, well, now consider this. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And perhaps you spotted as we read this that the two halves of the verse are not exact mirror opposites. Those verses that stand out are those words, for my sake, those vital words. Because to deny self and take up our cross and follow Jesus, well, it looks like a life lived for his sake, a life concerned about the progress of his kingdom and not my little kingdom. And Jesus calls it losing life because it will look like madness to the world at times. It involves suffering and hardship now because we're loyal to him. We're following the Christ who suffered and died. But it's to find life because it's a path that ends in glory with Jesus in his kingdom forever. As I've been thinking through this in the week, I've been wrestling with how to illustrate what it would look like to lose life now because there are so many specific outworkings of this. It's hard to to give one example One thing I've been reflecting on is how grateful I am to see many examples of this model to me in the church family here that I can learn from. And as we get to know Jesus in Matthew's gospel, he'll teach us what it looks like to follow him. And he's been teaching all through the gospel. In chapter 10, Jesus has already taught that to follow him will mean persecution. It may even mean death. He says his disciples can be expected to be hated for his name's sake. Peter would literally carry a cross for Jesus' sake. So it may look like hostility. I'm told in the 20th century that there were more martyrs than in the previous 19 put together. And whilst that hostility may not look like martyrdom, well, it will often look like some kind of mistreatment. Think of the worker passed over for promotion because their highest priority is to hold out the keys to the kingdom. Think of the employee who won't fly the flag for an ideology that dishonors Jesus, but that gets noted. Or perhaps it's the neighbor who's just a bit cold to you on the street because you're the one who speaks about Jesus with the others. Or I was thinking of a story of a student um, I came across working on a summer job. They're working as a laborer uh, for landscape gardeners, and the uh, foreman said, well, this afternoon we're all going to knock off early, but just record the full day on our timesheets. But they wouldn't want to do it. They were willing to face the hostility for Jesus' sake. Jesus has even taught us that uh, to follow him at times will bring us division in relationships, in families. And perhaps some of us know that experience. It might be that it's counting the cost of time and energy given to wrestle through a moral or ethical issue because we want to honor Jesus when the world would say, well, just do what feels right. And it could affect our relationship decisions, our financial plans. And wasn't it wonderful to baptize Lily this morning? But do we appreciate what Ollie and Charlie have done? They do. We prayed these words, grant that Lily may know you as her heavenly father and enter your kingdom through faith in your beloved son. And we heard Ollie explain that, well, their prayer is that Lily would follow Jesus. It's a prayer that she would lose her life as she grows up to follow Jesus and live for his sake in total surrender to him. Because whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. 
and even as we think about Jesus gathering his church, well, actually, this pattern, this call, is to be disciples willing to choose hardship for the sake of serving others, serving one another in love. Jesus will build a church full of disciples, surrendered to him, and they will love one another like nothing else in the world. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And he wants us to be sure that this really is the right thing to do, and so he asks us to consider the profit and loss account. And that's where verse 26 goes. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The world will tell us that we're losing out if we follow Jesus. It would be so much simpler to deny him. Just live life to the full. And Jesus says, well, when we take that attitude, actually it suggests we don't really value our lives very much at all. Apparently, Birmingham is the best place to live if you want to win the national lottery. And there were 205 winners since it began. And of course, each of them would be dreaming about what they could do with that money, houses, cars, holidays, and all the rest. But before we make a dash to Euston Station, we need to consider the profit and loss account. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The writer J.C. Ryle said this, there can only be one answer to this question. There's nothing on earth or under the earth that can make amends to us for the loss of our souls. He goes on, the soul is eternal. That one single word is key to the whole question. Let it sink down deeply into our hearts. Are we wavering in our religion? Do we fear the cross? Does the way seem too narrow? Let our master's words ring in our ears. What shall it profit a man? And let us doubt no more. Do we value our lives? No possession or achievement or experience? Well, none of that can be given in return for our soul. It's only Jesus' death on the cross that ransoms us and secures us life for eternity. Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Son of Man is an exalted title, an immensely exalted title. It comes from Daniel 7, and where we read of one who, like a Son of Man, is given dominion by God the Father over all the world and the authority to judge. And did you notice Back in verse 21, those last few words, Jesus says, on the third day he will rise. They seem to pass Peter by in the moment. He's so fixed on the shock of Jesus saying he would suffer and die. But they're so significant because Jesus will rise, would rise. He has risen. And so Jesus, the Son of Man, will return in glory to judge everyone in this room, in the city, and in all the world. And he says he'll repay each person according to what he has done. The question is, did we save our lives and sideline the Savior who came to suffer for sinners? Or did we deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow him, surrender to our king? Those who save their lives now will lose them. There will be judgment. Those who surrender to Jesus, who lose life for his sake, there will be life. The missionary Jim Elliott 
put it in these famous words, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. When we surrender to Jesus, when we take up the cross, we are under the care of the compassionate king and our souls are secure and we have gained everything. And Jesus wants us to be so sure of this. And so verse 28 He says, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I think verse 28 could be fulfilled in a number of ways, almost as if there are a number of points of fulfillment down the path of history. And the very next scene, six days later, there are Peter, James, and John, and they see Jesus transfigured on a mountain, a sneak peek, a preview of the risen, exalted Jesus in glory, assurance of the kingdom to come. And then they'd have seen him risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. And so Jesus says to his disciples, you can have total confidence, a place at the victory banquet with the king. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, perhaps we're feeling challenged by these words. I certainly have felt that way this week, conscious of ways perhaps where we're seeking to save our lives. Well, it might be that this morning is a time to repent, to turn back, to ask forgiveness. But remember, Jesus is the compassionate king. He's died for sinners. He has mercy on all who come to him. Or perhaps we're feeling weary of a particular cost. Well, Jesus again urges us to look at who he is, to look at the cross the resurrection. Here is the Christ who suffered and died and rose to secure abundant eternal life for his people. He will build his church on the rock of this gospel word and his church will be a gathering of disciples who've surrendered their lives to him and look forward to the fullness in the kingdom of heaven. The old saying goes, the cross must come before the crown and the crown will come. Verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, eternal King and suffering Savior who died for sinners like us. Thank you for this gospel truth on which he will build his church. Thank you for his invitation to come whoever we are, and have life. Please forgive us where we have denied him. And please grant that we might surrender all to him, willing to lose life now for his sake, knowing that in him we have gained it all. And we ask this for his name's sake. Amen.